welcome to episode 79 and a happy Academy Awards season to you and yours. Thank you once again for joining me by giving that little triangle pointing to the right a tap so that you can play or download this podcast. Whether it's your first time listening or your 78th, you are taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, so much obliged to you. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. By now, you've more than likely heard that the nominations for the 95th Annual Academy Awards were announced recently. And so it begins. Another season of publicity machines going into overdrive, TV and radio talk show appearances, and full-blown ads taken out in every publication, from Variety to the Gossip Rags, with names like Tongue Magazine. In other words, Oscar campaigns, predictions, and debates. It'll reach a crescendo, Oscar night will fall upon us before we know it, and overblown musical numbers coupled with rambling acceptance speeches will ensure that the ceremony will stretch into a fourth and then a fifth and then a sixth hour. But who's kidding who? I'm all in. And hopefully you will be too after listening to this series of Silver Screeners episodes that'll focus on a small smattering of this year's newly anointed nominees, as well as nominees and winners of the past. Now you may be thinking to yourself, the past? Exactly how far back are we going? Old stuff is boring. The sight of black and white films sears my eyeballs with the heat of a thousand suns. I can't. I just can't. I... I... No! Ooh, boss, come down from the ceiling and find inspiration and a fresh perspective courtesy of the wise words of Oscar recipient, Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. For me, I found pleasure and excitement in the Oscar nominations for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the veritable shit show the January has been so far. My son was driving himself to his piano lesson a few weeks back and he came to a four-way stop sign. He stopped completely and then proceeded to cross, when suddenly this other motorist driving towards him from his right-hand side blew through their own stop sign, hitting him on his passenger side. No one was hurt, no medical personnel needed on the scene, and my son even made it to his piano lesson. But the most delicious bit of irony in all of this is that an eyewitness on the sidewalk happens to be an insurance agent. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, yes. This witness confirmed to the cops that the other guy was at fault, and when we saw the footage from the street camera, the CCTV, you hear them in the background on the video saying, Oh, that guy totally went through. He didn't stop. The kid did all right. So while the car he was driving is at the auto shop, probably until next Oscar season at the rate that's going, I'm driving a rental that insurance is covering. But here's the kicker. I picked it up, got the keys, climbed in, and was greeted with the warm embrace of the aroma of stale, lingering cannabis. That's right, I'm driving to and from work every day with that scent. I'm a high school teacher, so it's a real good look when I pull into the parking lot, turn off the car, and step out with my jacket smelling like I'd just been to a James Taylor concert. May as well go all out and pump out mist from a fog machine when I open the car door wearing my sunglasses while the radio plays Motley Crue. But my kid's fine, I'm aromatic, and the Oscar nominations are ripe for the picking. Enough sentiment. On with the show. In these episodes, we're going to take a look at one of this year's nominees. It could be from any category ranging from musical score, costume design, or acting, to screenplay, visual effects, or directing. And that nominee will be paired up with a previous nominee or winner that's linked to it in some way. For this first episode in this Academy Awards series, the spotlight is shining on Best Leading Actor contender Austin Butler for his portrayal of Elvis Presley in the Best Picture nominee Elvis, directed by Baz Luhrmann, who, by the way, is actually not nominated for Best Director. 
Mr. Butler's companion on the throne of rock royalty is Rami Malek, who received the Best Leading Actor Award for his portrayal of Freddie Mercury in 2018's Best Picture nominee, Bohemian Rhapsody. Two performances, two young or at least youngish actors, and a lot of musical notes splashed on the screen. We'll follow the usual format for an episode where there isn't a guest. Spoiler-free plot setups, meaning the premise of both films, how they begin. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So let's begin by bumping and grinding our way over to the master of the hip swivel, Mr. Elvis Presley himself. Elvis Presley. What can we say about the walking aphrodisiac that hasn't already been said? Well... Academy Award nominee Ustin Butler is not the first actor to tackle the challenge of playing the king of rock and roll, but he is the first to get an Oscar nod for it. The film is currently up for eight Oscars, in fact. Best Production Design, Film Editing, Costume Design, Cinematography, Sound, Makeup and Hairstyling, Leading Actor for Butler, and Best Picture. We'll find out on Sunday night, March 12th, which of these eight, if any, will go from nominee to winner. But in the meantime, let's take a look at how this story plays out Baz Luhrmann style. First, a disclaimer. I'm not a big fan of Baz Luhrmann's directing style. I completely respect artists having their own personal stamps on their films, their individual trademarks, if you will. But his is one I just can't get into. I've seen The Great Gatsby with Leo DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio, Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. They're all bold and visionary, but there's no denying they're campy and deliberately overacted not to mention the worst nightmare of every ADD-addled individual such as myself with the rapid-fire cuts and zooms in and out and flashy transitions. But I put that all aside as much as I could to approach Elvis with a clean slate, which, to be fair, worked out to the benefit of the film. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in France on May 25, 2022, opened on June 22 in Belgium, Egypt, France, Iceland, Italy, Lithuania, and the Philippines, and then on June 24th in South Africa, Poland, the UK, and the US, among other places. After the film opens with the Warner Brothers logo bedazzled in gold, it retreats and is replaced by a new logo, a red circle decked out in the same gold with the letters BZ in the center, and the motto, A Life Lived in Fear is a Life Half-Lived, sprawled out underneath. We can faintly hear the Elvis tune, Suspicious Minds, as if it's coming from an echoey chamber of sorts. Then a series of quick dissolves shows some small handheld doodads, a clown that looks haunted as shit, a couple of glass snowmen, and then a blue banner hanging on a wall with a snowman in the middle, the words, Snowman's League of America, and the name Colonel Tom Packer along the top. On either side of this banner are framed photos of U.S. presidents, LBJ and Reagan on the right, Nixon on the left shaking hands with the real Elvis. Another dissolve brings us to a close-up of a withered pair of hands holding a box labeled Christmas cards. Then, in typical dramatic Baz Luhrmann slow motion, the owner of the hands tries to put the box on a shelf, but falls to the ground with the box in tow. And the camera glides past a very prosthetic-laden Tom Hanks as Colonel Paco lying on the ground with his eyes wide open but his senses wide shut as we zoom in on all of the Christmas cards spilled all over the floor. As the camera focuses on one in particular that shows the rock legend himself holding a microphone and the words from Elvis written over him to the tune of Stevie Nicks and Chris Isaac's little ditty Cotton Candy Land, a voiceover begins. For those of you who are wondering who this fella here is, I am the legendary Colonel Tom Packer. And the camera pans from the set of Elvis to the right to show the Colonel's visage on the same Christmas card. 
Cut to a neon sign proclaiming welcome to fabulous Las Vegas with a very Baz musical fanfare as we're treated to shots of the whole Nevada City that perhaps you've heard of. Whether these are CGI images or drone shots, I couldn't say definitively, but as a teacher of the book, having sat through similar shots in Baz's version of The Great Gatsby more times than any human walking on this planet should have to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's CGI. Go big or go home, and if Baz has the choice between the two, he never opts to go home. So the colonel is taken to the hospital, as his narration declares that even though a lot of people make him out to be a villain, without him, there would be no Elvis Presley that he gave Elvis to the world. Next thing we know, there's a flashback to the International Hotel in Las Vegas in 1973 as Suspicious Minds resumes, again, faintly, as rapid zooms in and out of flashy signs proclaiming liar, fraud, and con, intercut with shots of Elvis unable to stand, are accompanied by snippets of recreated news stories of Packer taking 50% of Elvis's earnings, mismanaging, addicted to gambling, and that sort of thing. Elvis's entourage dunks his head into ice-cold water to get him on his feet, while Packer walks right over, looks at the singer on the ground, and angrily says, Now you listen to me. The most important thing is that that man gets up on that stage tonight. Chaotic flash cuts and split screens show Elvis on the stage singing glory, glory, hallelujah to roaring crowds, including some groupies who seem to be getting horny as a toad staring at this wonder. More audio footage accuses Packer of killing Elvis, then cut to Packer sitting up suddenly in a hospital bed, yelling, No! It's not true! He proceeds to justify his pathetic existence by bringing us back to the 50s, where, as an undocumented Dutch immigrant, he worked for the carnival for country singer Hank Snow, played by David Wenham. It's Hank Snow's son, Jimmy Rogers, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, who was just up for a supporting actor Oscar last year for Power of the Dog. So, Power the Dog plays a record of a song called It's All Right and says that kids all over town are playing it wherever he goes. Hank says that he has race-specific rhythms in the song, only he uses more abrasive terminology. Power of the Dog adds, yeah, but with a country flavor. Packer recognizes the record label as one that releases music targeted at African Americans, but he too actually uses more abrasive terminology. Power of the Dog says that this singer is on after him that night and that this singer is white. This gets Packer's panties in a wad as he envisions dollar signs dancing in his head. Packer flies right over that night to where Power of the Dog is performing so he can find and meet the man behind the voice. He observes from a distance as Elvis is nervous about getting on stage. His mother Gladys, played by Helen Thompson, tells him to relax and that Jesse is watching over them. They join hands with his bandmates in a prayer circle to sing and ask Jesse for strength. Packer reveals in more voiceover that Jesse was Elvis's twin brother who died in childbirth. A series of comic strip panels shows illustrations of this happening. Okay, I'm sorry, but Baz, I know you're listening, but sorry boss. This was an audacious and disconcerting directorial decision here. In one panel, a man is sitting outside at nighttime on his front step with his face buried in hands in grief. In the next panel, another man is calling out that Elvis's mother, giving birth, is having another one. And in the next, she's holding infant Elvis, telling him that he'll have the strength of two men. Then a cartoon image of Elvis's father Vernon standing in front of a bank check. He's played by Richard Roxburgh. That appears as Packer narrates that when Vernon passed a bad check and got carted off to prison, the boy and his mama moved into an all-black neighborhood. Jailbars quickly fade in over the image of Vernon. A new panel shows Elvis as a kid, 
with tears running down his face and his arms stretched out, calling, No, Daddy! as his mother holds him back. Then, young Elvis, played by Shaden Jay, is shown hanging out with the other neighborhood kids with race not being a factor, something that the real Elvis always believed strongly in. The kids are hanging out in their neighborhood when they hear soul music coming from inside a shed. They peek in through holes in the wall of the shed and see a singer named Big Boy Crudup, played by Gary Clark Jr., singing his heart out with his guitar and a few couples dancing slowly and sensually around him. Young Elvis is captivated. He and his friends then hear singing coming from inside a tent, where a worship service is being held. So they run over there, go inside, and gaze in awe and wonderment at the singing. Okay, I'm sorry, I know this is an artistic conception of Elvis's roots and all, but mine a plot hole here. If this is his neighborhood, wouldn't he have seen all of this before? It's like walking out your front door, doing a double take, and saying, I live on a street? Then we're taken back to where Power of the Dog has just finished performing, and Elvis, still in the prayer circle, is told it's time. And sure enough, as this is a musical biopic, there is one trope that the film cannot go without. He takes to the stage nervously, begins to sing to the tuneful accompaniment of the screeching feedback from the microphone, is mocked by some wannabe stud in the crowd for his pink outfit and longish hair, and it looks like his act is going to hell in a handbasket. But once he turns on the charisma, the girls in the audience become screeching banshees as he gyrates like a thrashing machine, sings in that sultry tone, and it doesn't hurt that the lyrics to his song keep repeating, baby, baby, baby. The wannabe stud in the audience is angry at his girl for getting hot to trot, Elvis's mother despairs that the girls are trying to kill her son, and Elvis himself retreats backwards in surprise behind the curtain at the commotion he's caused, not to mention the undoubtedly plentiful supply of underwear thrown onto the stage. Paco witnesses all of this and knows that he has to manage that boy's career. Well, this is about 20 minutes into this two-hour, 40-minute film. You take it from there to soak in Austin Butler's admittedly impressive performance that earned him a well-deserved Oscar nomination for Best Leading Actor, Tom Hanks's oafish overacting that earned him a well-deserved Razzie nomination for Worst Supporting Actor, and Baz Luhrmann's directorial style that cannot be accused of reservation or self-consciousness. Time now to hear nothing but Radio Gaga, Radio Goo Goo, Radio Blah Blah, Someone Still Loves You. Bohemian Rhapsody premiered in London on October 23rd, 2018, and throughout the UK and Ireland on the 24th, then the US on November 2nd. The original director of the movie, Brian Singer, was fired during the production due to disagreements with some of the cast, including Rami Malek, as well as two of the original members of Queen, Brian May and Roger Taylor. The rest of the movie was directed by Dexter Fletcher. It won four Oscars, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Leading Actor for Malik. It was also nominated for Best Picture, which went to Green Book. Huh? I know, I can't make heads or tails of that one either. As our story begins, the 20th Century Fox logo appears with the familiar fanfare, only the music plays with an electric guitar Queen style. We dissolve into a close-up of the sleeping face of Freddie Mercury himself, played by Rami Malik. His eyes open, he stares off into space, he breathes deeply, sits up in bed, and coughs. The film's title appears unobtrusively at the bottom of the screen, as the voice of an announcer proclaims that it's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia, and around the world, it's time for Live Aid. Cut to the sights of the crowds at that famous 1985 concert as Wembley announces a formal welcome to the Prince and Princess of Wales. The camera pans from left to right, following a man hopping into a packed trailer, while Somebody Love plays over the opening credits. 
The camera zooms in on a monitor inside the trailer showing the real-life footage of Chuck and Di taking their seats. Meanwhile, back in his home, Freddy, now dressed, makes his way deliberately down the stairs and out his front door. He drives off with his two cats staring at him leaving, presumably hoping he'll return with some meow mix. We intercut back and forth between shots of the publicity machine in full swing at the stadium, and close-ups of Freddy's journey there, complete with close-ups of his spinning tires, the hood ornament of his car, his sunglasses-covered eyes, a microphone being taken out of its case, a guitar, and finally him arriving in slow motion, removing his jacket and dressed in the iconic blue jeans and white tank top as the camera follows him from behind. He makes his way out onto the stage where we go past his right shoulder and the view becomes a slow pan and zooms in on the entire crowd of screaming fans eagerly awaiting the arrival of their good old-fashioned lover boy. Thank you. We then cut to 15 years earlier. A title card divulges that we are now in 1970 London and Freddy is outside working as a baggage handler at London's Heathrow Airport. One of his co-workers calls out to him using an ethnic slur, and Freddy responds, I'm not from Pakistan. He gives the guy a glare that would crack the paint in a horse toenails, and goes about his work, as the song Doing All Right begins playing over footage of him waiting for his bus to go home at the end of an obviously unpleasant shift, as he writes song lyrics in a notebook he's carrying. We then see his mother putting dinner on the table at home as he comes into the room, apparently dressed for a fashion smackdown with Greg Brady and David Patridge. Says he's not hungry and that he's going out with friends. His mother asks if it's a girl, but he shrugs off the question just as his father walks in and addresses him as Farouk. The response his father gets is, It's Freddy now, Papa. His father makes it known that he doesn't give a frog's fat ass what his name is, as he immediately launches into a lecture about how Freddy goes out every night, doesn't plan for the future, and how he should aspire to good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Freddy looks him right in the eye and stabs him with this verbal dagger. Yes, and how has that worked out for you? Before walking out as the chorus to Doing All Right swells in volume as a musical exclamation point to end the scene. So in this scene, we get loads of exposition about his relationship with his parents, his name change, and his father's unmet expectations of him, compressed in a two to three minute scene that serves its purpose and gives us in the broad sweeping strokes a general overview of the family dynamic. Cut to the interior of a bar where a three-member band called Smile are performing Doing All Right Live. We have Brian May, played by Gwillem Lee, Roger Taylor, played by Ben Hardy, and Tim Staffel, played by Jack Roth. Behind them on the wall is a huge sign that says, Don't Forget to Smile, with the word SMILE screaming out all in capital letters louder than Chris Rock chewing down in peyote buttons. And there's a cartoony image of big red lips with 4,000 perfectly straight teeth separating them, right smack in the middle of one of the drums facing the audience. Freddy walks in, gets a pint at the bar, and watches and listens as the three on stage strike up a new tune as he sways to and fro and smiles at what he's hearing. After their set, he wanders around backstage hoping to find them, Along his way, he sees two young women, one of them, Mary Austin, played by Lucy Boynton. He compliments her scarf, and she returns the flirtation by saying it's from Biba, which was a London fashion store in the 60s and 70s. Mary's friend then chimes in, It's where she works. Mary turns to her bestie and responds thusly, Outside afterwards, Tim tells Brian and Roger that he's leaving them in order to join a band called Humpy Bong, saying he's tired of playing college gigs and pubs and going nowhere with Smile. 
So off he goes, faster than the babysitter's boyfriend, when the car pulls in, leaving Brian and Roger commiserating in the back of their van. Freddy walks up to them, says he enjoyed their show, tells them that he studies design here at the school, and that he writes songs. The two of them are uninterested at first and say that their lead singer just quit, so he's too late. But light dawns on Freddy's head as he suggests himself as the replacement singer. They scoff and say, not with those teeth. Undeterred, he bursts full a cappella into doing all right, and Brian and Roger, seemingly moved by the melodic muse before them, harmonize with him. They all chuckle, and Freddy says that he was born with four additional incisors. More space in his mouth means more range. And he tells them, I'll consider your offer, and starts to walk away. Okay, I'm sorry, maybe I just fell off the turnip truck, but there was no offer put on the table, so this dude's got swag, not to mention a pair of wontons the size of sanitation trucks to be that audacious. But it works, because they call out to him to ask if he plays bass, and he calls out, Nope, nary a courteous glance back at them. Cut to Freddy entering his local Biba store where he, not so accidentally, runs into Mary. He looks at some women's clothing and asks for it in his size. We next see him in the dressing room, and she comes in with some additional clothing tips. He asks her if she's even supposed to be in there, and she replies, Oh, hell no! Okay, she didn't sing it, but there is an unmistakable sexual tension in the air. We next see Freddy being introduced to Smile's next gig, as well as John Deacon, played by Joe Mazzello, another newbie to the band. Mary is in the audience, suggesting that they're now an item, and Freddy launches into their first song, Keep Yourself Alive. He fights with the microphone stand, gets ethnic slurs hollered at him, causes Mary to look at him in consternation, and screws up the lyrics. But once he turns on the mercurial charisma, the crowd goes along with him, and he's a hit. It's then one year later, and the plucky foursome are dealing with a broken-down van in the middle of a deserted road. Roger moans about the band having sold out every pub and uni in Glasgow, only to be stuck in the middle of nowhere eating a ham sandwich. That's when Freddy suggests doing something different. Cutting an album. To raise the funds, he says, they can sell the van. Roger be like, Say what? But that's just what they do. Freddy says to him, Don't be so dramatic, darling. You're recording an album tonight. Then there's a brief montage of the band staying up all night in a recording studio, recording their demos to beat the clock, along with Mary and another female companion observing them in the background. Now, I gotta be honest, this is really reminiscent of Meg Ryan as Pamela Corson and Kelly Ann Hu as Dorothy in the 1991 film The Doors, as their characters Pamela and Dorothy faithfully watch, look, and listen at Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek, and the rest of The Doors as they work their way through Light My Fire. So I don't know if these are both accurate depictions, or if it's just a rockstar biopic trope that spans nearly 30 years, but there it is. It's at this point when the band changes its name from Smile to Queen. As Freddie himself puts it, as in Her Royal Highness, and because it's outrageous, and I can't think of anyone more outrageous than me. With that, Mary lies down next to him in front of a piano. He reaches up and plays a few bars of a little ditty that would eventually become Bohemian Rhapsody, and he comments on its potential. They then roll on top of each other. He's feeling rather amorous, but she has to go to work and proves that in that moment he is most decidedly not the champion of the world. Then one more scene has the band, Mary, Mary's father, and Freddy's family all gathered around the table celebrating Freddy's birthday. Casual conversation reveals a little more of the personal background of Roger and Brian and John, just as Freddy announces that he changed his last name legally to Mercury, 
much to the hurt and chagrin of his father, who dejectedly puts his hand on a childhood photo of Freddy that's face up on the table in front of him. This is at the 20 minute mark of this 2 hour 15 minute long film. Don't stop me now. I'm having a good time, having a good time. Let's pivot towards the behind the scenes fun facts for both Elvis and Bohemian Rhapsody. As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment, there may be spoilers. So proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in the film, potentially including their endings. So spoiler alert, now. Number five. According to Entertainment Tonight, Austin Butler and Rami Malek talked with each other about playing a music icon. Malek told Butler that despite being nervous on the days he would need to perform in front of hundreds of extras, quote, those days will probably end up becoming your favorite days, end quote. Though Butler was worried about properly channeling Elvis, it turns out that he did it in more ways than one. Elvis apparently also suffered from terrible stage fright. Number four. Director Baz Luhrmann himself confirmed to Entertainment Tonight that Austin Butler does all his own singing as young Elvis in the movie, which he recorded on the original equipment that Elvis used while with ICA Records. Butler even recorded his own rendition of Trouble from Elvis's 68 comeback special specifically for this movie soundtrack. Number 3. Austin Butler was, at one time, a teen heartthrob and a regular on the Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, and The CW in shows like The Wizards of Waverly Place, iCarly, and Hannah Montana. In 2019, he played one of Charles Manson's most deranged cult members, the real-life murderer Tex Watson, in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he has already lined up his next project, joining the star-studded cast of Dune Part 2. But before focusing on his upcoming projects, he can bask in the warming glow of awards season, which began for him in May of 2022. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, after the movie's world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in France, Elvis drew a 12-minute standing ovation, among the longest on record in the 75-year history of the event. In a video chat with the Chronicle, Butler said, quote, Cannes was one of the most magical nights of my life. Suddenly, you have those moments where this is all about cinema. End quote. Number two. Austin Butler sent in a pretty unconventional audition tape to Baz Luhrmann. In it, Butler wore a bathrobe and sat at a black piano. Butler says, quote, It came out of this detail that I learned about Elvis, about his mom who passed away when he was 23. That's how old I was when my mom died, so I ended up filming this tape that came out of a nightmare that my mom was dying again. It was an emotion of such deep pain. It kind of stripped away the icon of him or the caricature of him, and it just made him so human. End quote. In this audition tape, Butler performed the song Unchained Melody. Number one. Elvis's real-life widow, Priscilla Presley, was understandably skeptical when she first heard who was involved in the making of this film. She publicly said, quote, I don't know, this film could be crazy. Baz can be wackadoo. And how can this skinny kid play Elvis? End quote. On top of that, Baz Luhrmann was planning on telling the story of Elvis, warts and all. He said, quote, There were things that were going to be difficult for them to see about Elvis, but they were also going to see the humanity and true spirituality of him, which was the most important thing. End quote. After seeing the finished film, Priscilla Presley wrote Lerman a letter saying, quote, My whole life I've had to put up with people impersonating my husband, and I don't know how that boy did it, but every move, every wink, 
If my husband was here, he'd say, hot damn, you are me. End quote. As for Bohemian Rhapsody, try these on for size. Number five. The exact replica of Wembley Stadium where Live Aid was held in real life was built on a muddy airfield named Bovington, which is near Hemel Hampstead, a town 24 miles outside of London. The replica was built because the 1985 version of the stadium does not exist anymore. Number four. The film has Freddie telling his bandmates shortly before their Live Aid performance that he was HIV positive. It is an emotional and dramatic scene, but it's all conjured up in the imagination of the screenwriters. Freddie was not diagnosed until 1987, two years after the concert. Number three. In real life, Queen did not ask to open or close the Live Aid show, but instead took the 6 p.m. slot, prime time for the UK, and suitable for a US audience five hours behind. The songs they performed were Bohemian Rhapsody, Radio Gaga, Hammer to Fall, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, We Will Rock You, and We Are the Champions. Elton John was apparently so blown away that he rushed to their dressing room afterwards, screaming that they had stolen the show. Number two. According to the film, Freddie's solo album contracts were a source of friction and the catalyst for the band's eventual breakup, that Roger and Brian and John did not share his aspirations to something new and asked him not to leave the band, but the film's Freddie Mercury stands his ground and Roger Taylor tells him, you've just killed Queen. In reality, all four of them were trying to get solo albums off the ground, not just Freddie. In 1978, Roger himself recorded a single and released the Fun in Space album in 1981. And number one. Rami Malek went through some pretty intense vocal training to be able to sing for some scenes. The movie soundtrack is composed of Rami Malek, singer Mark Mattel, whose singing is Freddie's vocal doppelganger, as well as the original Freddie himself. Malek had to get used to his Freddie Mercury teeth before they actually became comfortable and natural looking. He said that it was hard to talk, sing, and kiss in them, but eventually felt weird without them. Once filming wrapped, he kept them and got them cast in gold. Let's shelve the orthodontics because now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 79, simply asked you which of these two gods of rock would you rather have dinner with, Elvis or Freddie Mercury? This one must have struck a nerve because I've never had this many responses to a single poll before. Hey, I'm thrilled. On the Facebook group Silver Screeners, there were 19 votes, with 48% going to Elvis and 52 to Freddie Mercury. On Twitter, 34 votes came in, with 26.5% for Elvis and 73.5% for Freddie. Elvis got one more vote on Instagram, but not enough to overtake Freddie, who got three more votes. Enough for him to radio his gaga to the finish line with the majority of the votes. Big thanks to all voters, as I say every time, these polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode. So thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMandosa1974, or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. One last thing before we close out, the listener trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. The more listeners who take a crack at it, the better. 
I announce the first name and last initial of anyone who sends in a response. Doesn't matter if your response is right or wrong. And in addition to a shout-out in the next episode, if you provide your email, you'll get a movie-related meme sent with a personalized greeting. And every trivia question is up for grabs. You could be listening to episode 15 or 45 or 75, and it's never too late. You'll get your meme and shout-out no matter how recent or far back the question is. And one more thing, if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, a YouTuber, independent business owner, anything, I gotcha. Always happy to give your stuff a shout-out because people help people, and that's all there is to it. So, last time, the question was, Joaquin Phoenix was nominated for playing Johnny Cash, and Reese Witherspoon won for her portrayal of June Cash in what 2005 film directed by James Mangold? I can give you a hint. The film's title is also the title of one of Johnny Cash's best-known songs. And the answer is Walk the Line. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following, in no particular order. The one, the only, Mary C., a longtime regular listener and trivia player. Mary, thank you. Lisa B. also hit it out of the pack, as did return winner Ed I. Big thanks to you both as well. We also have, straight from Italy, DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast, who offers this additional information. In Italy, the title of Walk the Line was When Love Burns the Soul. Nick, thanks for being generous enough to always take the time to share these fun facts about movie title translations. His podcast is called The Gold Standard Oscars, which he hosts with his friends Rachel and Zan. Abundant Z from Instagram has two memes coming. One for this trivia question, and one for last episode that asked about the 1961 Audrey Hepburn film that features the Oscar-winning classic song Moon River. And my buddy Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho. He also did the mic drop and boom with the correct answer. He's currently making a series of episodes looking at the top 52 films according to IMDb. There's also the legend Liz M., my sister-in-law who, as I say every time, kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. Congrats are in order to you, sister. Another return victor is the man himself, Mike W. He and I co-hosted a movie program together for the local cable TV company. Mimi Mosher on Instagram also reigns supreme. Both she and Mike expressed their love for the film in their posts. And a hearty thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. Happy Oscar season. And to anyone else listening, no time like the presents. Join the trivia. It's easy, fun, and free. What more could you want? And you can begin with this episode's question. I mentioned 1991's The Doors in this episode, the musical biopic with Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison and Meg Ryan as Pamela Corson. Name the controversial Oscar-winning director of this film, who, despite the controversial content of many of his films, stubbornly stands by them. He's a rock. A rock. In fact, you might say that his last name is something like a rock itself. He won for 1986's Platoon and 1989's Born on the Fourth of July and was nominated yet again for JFK, which I covered last year in episode 38. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, The Film Group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that does it for episode 79. As I say at the conclusion every time, big thanks once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
It does help to boost the show's visibility on these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Austin Butler, Rami Malek, and the cast and crew of their two films, singing their own praises of their Oscar wins and nominations, followed by Elvis's trademark expression of sincere gratitude. Thank you very much. Thank you.